Morning, everyone. Welcome to another day of Daybreak Crypto. As usual, we have two articles we'll discuss today. We're starting things off with uh, what the future of accessing cryptocurrencies looks like for traditional investors in traditional markets, specifically ETFs. As you may know, uh, crypto. Every, a lot of people want to invest in cryptocurrencies, and but not everyone's willing to go set up their own wallet and enter what they view as an exceptionally dangerous space on centralized or decentralized exchanges. Instead, what a lot of people would like, a lot of people are unfamiliar with this space, want to do is gain access gain investment exposure to cryptocurrencies with mutual funds, ETFs, products that they're very familiar with. Because of this exceptionally high demand, the SEC has been fielding a number of requests for companies to provide that. Right, uh, Grayscale, for instance, Grayscale Investment Trust has been providing Bitcoin access to investors for a long time. They've been able to get approval and they've been able to do that just because of the unique nature of their trust system where they initially only offered to private investors and now you can actually gain access um, as a public investor, but, but it's a bit complicated. Really, I think what most people want is for, is for an ETF, a spot ETF. This would provide uh, any investor with a brokerage to invest and gain exposure to Bitcoin. Uh, however, up until now, some of these have existed, but they've been futures ETFs. So the fund doesn't buy Bitcoin. And when you own these ETFs, you don't gain a direct price exposure. Instead, it's uh, filtered through futures markets, which are its own giant complicated thing. But um, people are still trying. Uh, there's been some encouraging signs from people who want to see spot Bitcoin ETFs. Uh, but uh, so far, in a lot of the recent rejections, the SEC is listing just a, a ton of things that have to be overcome. And not even just from the potential providers from these ETFs, but as well as the exchanges. Uh, so, you know, we're still, still looks like there's just the litany of uh, excuses of why a spot ETF can't exist. But at the same time, several futures ETFs exist. So um, in my mind, it just seems inefficient and it seems a little, uh, doesn't yeah. really make a lot of sense. It, it really doesn't because, I mean, for many reasons, but I guess one being that that you could offer a very speculative futures ETF, but not offer a spot price seems the backwards way of looking at it. You think you'd start with the spot and then move to a very speculative futures type ETF, but mm -hmm. that's just one reason. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to know what changed, though, because there's been ETFs, like you said, in the past, and they've been denied by the SEC. So it's interesting that they decided this time that wasn't the case. So uh, this is, oh, we're about to get so dry into historical financial regulations. <laughs> um, glad you asked. Uh, so the reason that some people are gaining some hope this time around is because this specific approval, again, for a futures-based ETF from, I think it's Tucrium. These companies have to figure out better names, but I'm going to call them Tucrium. Tucrium got approval, but uh, they filed under a different set of laws and regulations, specifically the 1933 Securities Act mm. and the 1934 Securities Exchange Act. So whereas all of the other um, forward ETFs, uh, that have gained approval have filed under the 1940 Investment Companies Act. Mm, so, okay. <clears throat> yes, and so from a lot of people who know a lot more about regulation and law, they view this as like a little 
sliver of hope that someone else can maybe wiggle through. And ultimately, this is just comes down to lawyers probably arguing. So, yeah, I mean, it clearly seems like they're they're just trying to try different avenue to see if maybe they can find a way to get approval under some obscure reasoning, which honestly wouldn't surprise me if the SEC and Gensler decide for whatever reason that because they filed under this, this different act, um, there's some specific wording that will allow it. Uh, it seems like the timing is lining up where, where the SEC is going to want to start to include the idea of bringing these ETFs on or actually start doing it. So mm-hmm. I, I think they're going to find any way possible to not admit that they are wrong before in their decisions, but want to <laughs> approve this. Yeah. 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 And I think it, so, so here's my opinion. I, I guess I have to do the, this is not financial advice and all that stuff, but, um, uh, when you invest in a futures ETF, you you gain exposure to some risks that are unique to forwards. And I won't dive into them too much because I know it can be a little much at eight o'clock in the morning, <laughs> but you're not getting the price of the asset. You're getting the future price of an asset. And that requires parties to haggle and agree on what they think the future price will be. So you're, you're opening up uh, the, the actual price you get to additional speculation. And right. what, what people have noticed actually with a lot of these futures ETFs for Bitcoin is that every year, historically, there's been about a 5% headwind on your returns in the Bitcoin market. So if you had just owned Bitcoin at spot price or just owned it outright in your wallet, you would have every year gained 5% more in return. Uh, and there's other unique risks to the futures market. Now, this is a very different situation, but in the oil market two years ago, futures prices went to negative. Uh, basically, oil was in so little demand that people who held oil uh, were paying people to take it off their hands. And so imagine <laughs> if Bitcoin was trading at – the equivalent would be if Bitcoin was trading at 40000 and the futures price was trading at negative 10000 Like it, that would never happen because – but my point is just that <clears throat> there are – in my opinion, better ways to own Bitcoin. Just, just, just own it. It's pretty easy, actually. And then you don't have to expose yourself to some of these wild, uh, unique risks. Nor do you have to pay someone one to two percent to do it for you. That and that was something I was going to say. Is is one thing we're not even mentioning is is the fees you're typically paying a fund to to run these ETFs. It's it's not free to you. So not only are you losing on those potential, you know, headwinds you spoke of by just holding it Bitcoin directly. But you're also paying a fee on top of it um, mm-hmm. to your broker, whoever's wherever you're keeping that. So there's multiple ways you're probably not in the best situation financially when you're going through an ETF. I mean, I'm sure there's other times where that type of exposure is great and that's all someone wants. But personally, like you said, with, with Bitcoin specifically, it, I think it just makes more sense to hold it directly. Yeah, it's there are steps and it can be. Okay. To me, it just doesn't seem like it's that much more difficult to set up a crypto trading account versus a traditional brokerage account. Oh, and at the end sure. of the day, yeah. You feel the same? I mean, I mean, have you ever tried to actually like execute mm-hmm. a trade on like TD Ameritrade or any of these platforms? It is, it is extremely difficult and not user friendly. Like I have a financial background, and so I understand like what is happening on these interfaces, and I still have no idea how to put in order sometimes, or I'm not confident my order is in the way you should be in. So, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I, I just, it doesn't feel like there's this burden to entry for direct crypto ownership and setting up no. your wallet. Now, while there are risks um, that I think maybe are unique to running your own wallet, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it, it just still, if, if you're just looking for the best exposure to a crypto asset, I think it's probably just better to go out and buy it. Uh, it's, but uh, that's my two cents. Yeah. Uh, we're running a little long. Yeah, you got an article, right? Yeah, so I just wanted to touch base on the run and bridge hack. So we talked about this, I'd say two or so weeks ago. <clears throat> and essentially, this was a bridge hack that happened on Ethereum, um, where where essentially Axie Infinity, which is an NFT gaming company, got hacked for over $600 million. And it was due to their bridge being exposed. And so I just wanted to like kind of bring this back to kind of recoup on what happened. So with these bridges, it, they're typically used to transfer tokens from one chain to another. Um, so from like Ethereum to another chain, let's say like Cosmos. If you don't have chains that can communicate directly, um, which most can't because they're built on their own framework, so they really don't communicate, you have to build these bridges to kind of like package the data up, send it over to the other chain and unpackage it in their language, if you will. Um, so to do this, they have to have bridge operators, which inherently is, in my opinion, the antithesis of what you are trying to do in a decentralized permissionless blockchain world or Web3, because you're relying on validators, operators to approve these bridge transactions. And these bridges can hold, like we're seeing, hundreds of millions of dollars of tokens at one time. And in Axiefinity's case, there's only nine validators that are running this bridge or operating it. So you, to basically hack this bridge and get all the funds, if you can get control of five of the nine validators, you'd have 51% of the validating power or voting power. And you can actually sign, you can basically make the chain do whatever you want, which includes redirecting those funds to whatever wallet you want. And that's kind of what happened at, uh, at Axe Affinity. So it was interesting to read through what all happened and how it went down. Um, and it, it's also interesting to see what they're doing to make the users whole this is the second time now i've seen this where hundreds of million dollars have been stolen in a bridge attack i think it happened to solana a month or two yeah. ago they also mm -hmm. lost around 300 million um so but both of them are, are trying to pay back in some form and that's something i just wanted to highlight because you don't see that very often in the space is these protocols taking responsibility and trying to make the users whole um i saw axie was trying to raise 150 million dollars to give back to the users and i know solana gave back about 320 million themselves so really nice to see that you know they understand that these these hacks have occurred and they're they're detrimental to some people's financial position and cool that they're trying to you know make people whole even though it was a unfortunate event yeah one thing that stuck out <clears throat> excuse me was um they they talked about how they're bringing in chainalysis in and mm -hmm. It just when I, whenever I read these stories, I, I feel like I'm just counting the seconds until Chainalysis enters the picture because um, they're incredibly powerful um, tools that can see where all this money goes across the crypto space. Uh, will probably allow them to track uh, where this the rest of the money that's uncovered, uh, unrecovered goes. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, like they're they're on the case. They're almost like the cops. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and it's funny too, because like you said, they seem to show up anytime there's some sort of fraud or missing tokens, their names getting pulled into the article. So good for them. Mm -hmm. Their, their marketing's great. Um, 
But what I actually thought was hilarious is when they were when they were looking into where the funds went, they actually <laughs> hilariously the hacker of the six hundred million dollars um, wasn't satisfied with that. I guess uh, he wanted to make more money, so he oh actually God, tried yeah. <laughs> to take the money to an exchange and uh, short Axie and Ron R O N, which is a Ronin token. And so he he essentially opened up this huge leveraged um, short position using these stolen funds, thinking that the news would tank the coin's price, obviously hearing that $600 million was stolen. But no one heard about it in time or not soon enough for him. And so oh the price God. actually went up and he got liquidated. So uh... I, I so first <laughs> of all, like outside of the question of like, how exactly did no one notice $650 million was gone for a week? Like, I'm fine oh. setting that aside for a minute just to focus on, you want to know how hard it is sometimes to profit off options tradings is you can be the person committing the crime of the century and still screw it up. It's I, I, unbelievable. I, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I thought I was a bad options trader, but I've never blown $600 million <laughs> with the catalyst in my back pocket. Oh my God. Oh man. No, that that was pretty wild to read. I I just yeah. can't believe the amount of greed. Six hundred million dollars, and that's just not enough. I know enough. you you won. Just you can walk away. But in oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Just like dude, just sail to the sunset. But one of the things because I, I wanted to go back because you said that they took control of five of the nine validators, so that effectively allowed them to do whatever they want on the network, right? Yeah. Um, one of the aspects that they brought up was that uh, one of those validators, one of those five that were taken over uh, belonged to a DAO. The other four yep. belonged to one party. And so kind of a good example of uh, the pitfalls of over-centralizing the infrastructure there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I didn't actually realize that they're all from the same party, yeah. which is incredibly dangerous just yeah and, and that just shows like how vulnerable the the whole bridge idea can be because you are literally counting on third parties that you don't know to basically all do the right thing and act you know ethically all the time mm -hmm. and not only that you're also counting on them to secure everything like they have to secure all their own data and their passwords because if they get hacked like in this situation it doesn't matter if you trust them or not Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, cryptocurrency has done <clears throat> has created a number of pretty uh, unique and interesting security improvements. But this, unfortunately, is a reminder we get all the time, which is as long as a process requires human involvement, uh, there's your pitfall. It will always be exposed. This was really a social engineering hack, and mm -hmm. uh, humans are dumb, and uh, you know, yeah. we make good targets. Well, and that's what's tough is like you realize <clears throat> as decentralized as we want to be, and I think we're definitely becoming more decentralized, there's always or there currently seems to always be a point where there, you need to come back to centralization to do some sort of task or, you know, even just to get money or fiat off of, you know, the blockchain. You pretty much have to go through a centralized exchange. So I love that we're, we're creating this decentralized future, but again this is just showing how centralization is still part of it you still have to go through bridge operators um to to go across chains unless they're under ibc currently or you know a layer two so it's that's mm -hmm. what makes cosmos so special is like it has this ibc interoperability or interop 
Yeah. Basically interoperability where it can communicate with all these other sovereign blockchains directly and doesn't have to use these bridges that require, you know, third party authorization is completely permissionless. And that was one of the things that drew me to Cosmos uh, right away. Um, and so it's, it's interesting seeing these hacks happen, you know, more often and realizing this isn't something that's going to go away unless you just get extremely large uh, validator sets approving these bridges, but then you're losing that swiftness of being able to get consensus quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because let's just remind ourselves that Axie is the largest name by a country mile in uh, in the, the crypto gaming space. I, I mean, yeah. this uh, they are now highly motivated to figure out some, some better solutions here. And, and they've already suggested they're going to expand the validator set. But yeah, things like IBC and, and I mean, other innovations and inventions. Um, yeah, yeah, we're going to need to develop uh, new solutions all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's in this space, you're going to see innovation constantly. I mean, Cosmos has always been a chain of horizontal scalability. And today they literally just dropped news that they're coming out with a new way to scale horizontally through rollups. Um, so nice. It, or sorry, sorry, scale vertically. I'm not sure what I said prior, but Maybe either way. a teaser for a right? future episode? Yeah, no, that is a teaser <laughs> episode, but just shows you how, how these, you know, chains and protocols are continuing to innovate and adapt to what's happening. Uh, everyone's learning a lot, I think, in this cycle um, as more apps become popular. I feel like last cycle, it wasn't as much about the apps as much as about the layer ones. So mm -hmm. it's cool to see. Yeah, man. Solving our awesome. problems. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks for jumping on today. Uh, it's good to talk to you, bud. Uh, yeah. We uh, will be back tomorrow, just like every weekday. Thanks for joining us. See ya.